morning, folks. It's another episode of the Gary and Mark Show, and I'm Gary. And I am Mark. And we're coming to you, not live. But we are alive, Gary. We're alive and well in historic downtown Saluda, North Carolina. And we've podcast from Saluda a few times before, but the first time in this little place. Yes. What is this place? It's a nice little park. I it forget is. the name. Uh, but it's near the Senior Center. And that's appropriate. That is appropriate. We're all seniors. And they probably have a bathroom up there if we need to get to it. Yeah. They do have a recycling bucket over there. Okay. So uh, we got a busy show because people, if they're watching on YouTube, can see we have a guest today. Yes, we do. We'll get to our guest in just a minute. But, uh, yeah, you had at least one little bit of uh Oh, yeah, we, got, we, we, talk about. we go talk about on this day in history. And sometimes it's like, a, you know, Louis the Sixteenth getting uh, guillotined, or it's it's sad news or uh, war stuff. But today we're going to go with May 25, 1977, the day the very first Star Wars movie came out. That's something. Yeah, and we've all seen it, right? Yeah, and I bet most of our readers have seen it. Yeah, good story. Yeah. Well, I have one thing. This friend of mine, Rich Bauer, told me <clears throat> he took his granddaughter to a brand new petting zoo down in Watershed. Oh. And he said the only thing they had was one dog. It was a Shih Tzu. Yeah. <laughs> Shih <Shit>. Yeah. <laughs> Shih Tzu. Yeah. Okay. The one dog. Yeah. Petting zoo. Okay. So, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, you know, actually. That's funny to me. A a camp person we all may know, Hoyle Adams. We know him. He has a a dog that is half Jack Russell and half Shih Tzu, (laughs) and they call it a Jack Shit. Okay. No, I'm not saying that's okay. Yeah, that's fine. We we usually have a clean show here. That's clean. It is. It is clean. Well, so before we introduce our guests, I'm just going to point out we have a milestone. We have passed over 15,000 downloads on wow. Podbean, our host. Yeah. And in our YouTube videos, it's pushing 4,000 views. So wow. for, you know, a couple old people who don't know what they're doing. Sitting around talking. Sitting around talking. We should be proud of ourselves. Okay. Don't you think so? I think so. I think so. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, you, want, you want a uh, microphone stand for that, Steve? You just got to get close to it when you talk. All right. And he's going to get to talk here in a minute. He he's is, been so. sitting in the middle. But we are very fortunate today to have a fellow that we've known for, well, I'd say, pretty close to 50 years who came up here from Florida back in 1960 to work at a summer camp and has pretty much devoted his life to helping show others the outdoors. Some is rock climbing, others it might be snakes, others it might even be birds of prey. But he has really, in his 60-plus years of working with children and adults, done a great job of trying to show people the natural world. And there are tons of kids out there who are probably now grandparents Oh, yeah. Who finally remember Steve taking them on their first rock climb or Steve introducing them to a peregrine falcon or Steve showing them venomous snakes and how venomous snakes aren't bad snakes. They're snakes, you know. Uh, so I, we all, uh, I think, it just, it just hit me about, probably about this time 
in 76 or 77, Steve, who was then, I believe, at Fallen Creek, would come over to Mondamon and do like a, a full day or maybe it was two days, pretty much of a wilderness first aid oh, yeah. uh, kind of course for counselors. And he's done it for students, kids, yeah. too, because he has a book about that. Well, WEMA, yeah. Yeah. Wilderness Emergency Medical Aid. Well, I've talked too much about Steve. You sure have. I sure have. So we'll let Steve talk. Okay, yeah. so Steve, we may have to lean forward, or I can go get you a mic stand if you want. Here, how about... Well, that could work. We can take turns. Yeah. I'll go get a mic stand while you hold it. And we'll All right. Well, but, but before he gets... You know, sometimes just add it up. Yeah. If you add up his age, your age, and my age, we have almost... 220 years right here. I, that that goes back to the, like the Declaration of Independence or something. Let's see, 220. Let's see, two gets you to, well, well, I get you back to the 1800, doesn't it? All right, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to turn my mic off for a second while you yeah. get started on talking about his early days of climbing because that's what I want. He is a, a pioneer yeah, he in is. rock climbing, and I'll be yeah. right back. I remember, say, 1970, my second summer at camp, Jim Hopkins wanted to get a pair of heavy-duty hiking boots, and so he had to measure his foot or trace his foot or something and send the info to Steve, who was then at Sequoia. And you were like the agent, was it Reikley? I'm not sure what the boot company. I think it was called Loa. Oh, Loa. Oh, and they're still around, just like you. Yeah, I was the, I guess, the very first person around this area that's had gear and would sell it to people. Yeah. And people found out about it. I don't know how they found out, but they, they've had guys got some stuff out there at, fall, at uh, Sequoia, and we need to go look at it and see, because that's what people use for climbing. Yeah. So, you know, when I say a pioneer, when was your first what I would call climb where you're using any sort of gear. I don't mean just like bouldering up a rock, but when was that? Well, I went to a all-day climbing school in the Tetons. And before that, all I knew how to do, and I was with uh, my friend Bob Watts, yeah. who worked at, at Mondamon at the time, and we were driving out to California, and on the way out, we stopped at... Uh, Rocky Mountain National Park, and went to a, an all-day climbing school, and it snowed. It's it August. What, what year was this? this? This would have been, oh golly, in the early 60s, 62, I think. Wow. And we went to all-day climbing school. We were the only two people that showed up for the school, <laughs> and it cost us, I think, $20 all day and we learned how to hammer these metal thingy-ma-bobs into cracks yeah have you and, seen one of those thingy-ma-bobs before uh maybe in books mm -hmm. and we learned how to tie a knot around an, a rope and slide the little rope which is fastened to our feet up and the other one was fastened to the other foot and we could go up the rope with these things we learned how to do that and Pressicking. That's what they yeah. called it. They had, yeah. a, they had a name for it. Even back then they had that name? 
Oh, it's an old, I think an old Polish name or something. And then we, we already, we, we thought we knew a lot because we knew how to repel. As a guy had taught us how to come down, we had no idea how to go up or how to safety somebody because he did, the other guy did all the safety. That was a guy named Bill Wallace, who now is called Wally Wally. Wally, Wally, yeah, Wally, yeah. Wally Wallace. Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah, and... And the fellow, when, when he said goodbye to us after taking our $20, he said, well, you know, that's all I can show you. Now just go out and do it yourself. And so we tried doing it ourselves. We didn't know what, what how to do it, but we had a rope with us. And and was it was a real climbing rope? Or was it a piece was, of nylon rope a, from a, the No, it was actually it was a, it was a climbing rope. I'm guessing gold line? It was called gold line. Yeah. And we, we, all we knew... <laughs> One person tied it around their their waist, and they climbed, and the other person held the rope. And they, so what, the, then the, the other the, or above. No, the first person would, would would tie the rope on and go up. Okay. And then the Just other find a place to and, sit. And yeah, and the other person would would come up behind him, and the first person would pull up the rope. And that's that was our first climb. That's without metal. We didn't have any of that metal stuff. Yeah. And we that's we didn't quite know what's what's the first person supposed to do and what's the second yeah. person supposed to do. We didn't know any of that stuff. Did you have those commands like they do today? Uh, we did same same stuff that people. Well, the last time I taught climbing was in the early two thousands, and with the same terminology like climb up rope on belay the the same things continued and i think they still do to some extent oh, i think as far as i, I wouldn't know yeah. but uh, but know. you would communicate by voice and but, if you couldn't hear the person you had to tug on the rope like you'd pull in a, a fish or something you, two tugs meant something and three tugs meant something and hold on really tight meant something but we learned we had a book in one hand and we had our, our climbing with the other hand and that's that's how we learned yeah. this stuff. Yeah, wait a minute. You didn't have the book in your hand at the same time you were climbing, did you? Like, what yeah. not should we do now when the guy's dangling from... Well, we, we, uh, the climbing we did wasn't all that difficult. So we could probably have the book with us and figure it out or come down and read through it and see if we can tell what you're supposed to do. But we, we learned, and we pretty much learned on our own because there wasn't anybody else around that we knew that knew any of this stuff. Yeah. So... Did you bring it back to the North Carolina camps? Were you the one to introduce that? I think the way that actually went was Wally brought a rope and some gloves. So holding on to the rope tight. And some of these little metal things that are called they're called carabiners. <laughs> Everybody knows what carabiners are now, but back then I think they called them snap snap links. Snap links. Snap uh -huh. yeah. And he brought some of those to to Mondaman and he asked Chief, who was in charge and ran and was the Lord of Mondaman, um, if he could teach rope work, he called it. Because at that time it had no other name. It wasn't called climbing as far as we were concerned. Was, About what year was this? That was 1963. Yeah. And, and, and old Chief loved that idea. We went there was a big hemlock tree right outside of his office. He big glass windows, and he, he could look out there, and he could see us up in the hemlock tree, climbing up on the branches, and then hooking on to the rope with these snap lake things. 
no helmets or anything, just <laughs> climb on and go on down. And he loved seeing that because it was the first camp that had anything like that. Uh-huh. He'd heard of Outward Bound, which was something that was mostly in Europe and England. But there was a one school of Outward Bound that just started in Colorado. And he'd heard of it. So he wanted to be the first camp that had rope work of any camps around. And so that was the beginning of that. And I've heard that one of the inspirations was, you know, how there'd be that one night a week you'd have a camp movie, the kids would all get in the gym, and it was the Walt Disney movie Third Man on the Mountain. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, that that was sort of an inspiring um, they looked up at Odie. Yeah. They could see Odie's knob in the distance. <laughs> maybe, maybe it was. But you know, I attended just a few years ago. The they had the fiftieth anniversary of the first ascent of the nose route at Looking Glass, and that was Steve and Bob Watts and Bob Gillespie, and they were all at Black Dome, and uh, and it was a wonderful event. I thought it had a, a bunch of folks, all different ages, kids. Very inclusive. And so Steve was one of the first ones to do the, that? Well, there were three three guys, and that, I mean, that is a classic route. Well, there, my, there were a lot of people. I was surprised. Yeah. So tell us, I'm, I'm going to try to find a picture online to put on the YouTube version of uh-huh. Looking Glass, but Steve, describe Looking Glass for us and tell us where it is. Just for people, <laughs> people, our listeners are from all over the world. Describe so. Looking Glass, mm-hmm. well. I mean, they have no clue, you know, so, I mean, it looked like a been binoculars or does it look like an a exfoliated <laughs> granite dome there you go it looks like a great big loaf of bread yeah made out of rock yeah and it's is very visible in pictures of the western north carolina all over the internet looking glass rock north uh-huh. carolina and it's called looking glass because when the water w- would stream down it it would reflect light like a looking glass or mirror and also, it was small at one end and big at the other. And the big end is where you climb, you climb up the big end. And when you say the big end, how tall are we talking? How many feet? Well, it's... I know there's different climbs, but I mean, if, if you were to look at it from the parkway or something, I mean, how... Just... It's roughly from the ground where you start climbing on the... The first climb ever done on it was named the nose. We, we named it because we climbed it. And... It's roughly 500 feet from the ground at the base of the rock up to the top. Wow. Uh, it zigzags a little bit. Uh, if, you, if you were to go straight down, it's more like 400 feet, but it's, it's good ways up there. When you, when you get up there, you can see, see, see a long ways, and off in the distance, you can see the parkway. And that's where a lot of people see signs that say, looking glass rock view, and they look down in this valley, and there's this big old glob of rock over there in the distance it's and impressive even from that far away though so it's not like it's it is it is and i've even known people that they heard the peregrines were around looking glass and, and peregrines you've heard of peregrine falcons perhaps because anytime somebody says falcon that's the bird they mean it's the fastest bird flying in the world it, not flying but diving it dives onto its prey which are other birds and you can dive it over 250 miles an hour. They've actually clocked this with radar guns and stuff. And I've known of people that were bird watchers. 
and and they they would get up on the, the parkway, which is a long way away from Looking Glass, and with their with their telescopic devices and try to see try to see the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. A little far away. You can't. You can see Looking Glass, but you. Yeah, I think you know. About ten years ago, you took a group. I was with you. We walked along the base of the north side looking for pigeon feet. Well, we probably found pigeon feet. Yeah, <laughs> pigeon feet. Pigeon feet. Yeah, I mean, pigeon. Well, they feet. don't eat the feet. Okay. So the, yeah. So that was a good sign. Because the peregrines were nesting in the. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was protected. Is it still protected? For the nesting sites, every every year for half a year, from middle of January to the middle of August, I believe it is, they protect the area where the peregrines are known to lay their eggs and raise their babies, and that area is protected from anybody even hiking in there. No climbing, no what people call bouldering, which is climbing without any ropes. It's just climbing on the rocks. It's there are signs up that say don't come in, you're going to be fined as federal um, protection and that's in many places, not just Looking Glass but the the peregrines at at Looking Glass we think it's the same ones or now um, chicks from the same ones that come back now that are growing up and they raise their babies in the same place because it's a huge ledge which probably is the size of that thing over there as far as area goes and the birds can raise their they, they lay their eggs on the rock they don't they don't make a nest people call it nesting but they don't make a nest they just they just lay eggs on the rock and fortunately the eggs are, are normally egg shaped so they don't roll away if you get a round egg and it starts rolling away it's not going to stop but a yeah, egg shaped egg shaped egg shaped egg won't roll away very much and when the peregrines move around and the eggs move around too they generally stay in the same spot and mother and sometimes dad will get on top and brood them they'll keep the eggs warm and about a month later after the eggs are are, have been laid the babies poke out with their little beaks and now it's time for mom and dad to feed them and another month goes by until these guys are the babies are now big enough to fly. And when they can fly, or at least give it a try, uh, it's called fledging, and they get on the edge, I suppose, and jump off. <laughs> now you get this picture of mom and dad saying, okay guys, it's time to go, and bump. <laughs> now, I don't think it's quite like that. And there are situations, of course, when the baby tries to fly, and that's the only time it tries to fly. It just it hmm. crashes. In fact, I've, if if three or four, which is a typical brood, uh, are hatched in one year, chances are that only one might make it wow. until they are able to breed again. And so people should know that Steve here, in addition to climbing, bicycling, running, writing books giving talks, etc. He is an, a licensed wildlife educator where he is able to take in injured or, what would you say? I don't, no, I, the, the, the regulations are quite strict. I, my license is right, strict. Now, my remember, li- you are on the air, so make sure you don't say anything illegal. My okay. license is, is, thank you. Okay. My, yeah. my license is strictly for education. 
I'm the, I'm the one when a rehabber, who's the person that gets a, an animal, and in this case we're talking about birds of prey, and it, for some reason it's been injured, probably hit by a car. Happens lots of times, especially to big birds like red-tailed hawks and, and um, great horned owls. But the rehabbers, the, if the vet can't take care of it, and the vet knows of a rehabber, and there's a lot of rehabbers around, these are wonderful people, and they do this with their own money and their own time, and it takes a lot of both. The rehabber then tries to care for the bird, which means feed it, give it medication, see to it that it doesn't, it's not injured by other animals because there's many animals that want to get in and get the food that the people put in the cages. And falconers call the cages muse, M-E-W-S, get in the muse so they can, um, so the animals can eat. But we'll say a raccoon get, and this happens a lot, raccoon will get in, and you think that the hawk or the owl is going to be killed by the, or you think they're going to kill the raccoon. Well, generally that's not what happens. But eventually, if the bird is, can fly again, because for some reason it couldn't escape, now it can fly, and the rehabber will take a live animal, Typically, it'll be a mouse, or if it's large enough, a rat. And they'll put it in with these birds that we're trying to see whether they, they know how to hunt. Because when you're raising babies, you're not sure they know, they know how to hunt because mom and dad do the teaching. And in this case, they might not have any mom and dad to teach them. But if, if this injured bird or this young bird can find the prey and then it can kill it and eat, then it's probably releasable. And they'll take it to a suitable spot, sometimes even where the bird was found injured or where the, the nest was found, because sometimes nests will be fall out of trees and, and the, the birds are brought to the rehabber. And then that, that's the rehabber's job. But if for some reason the bird cannot fly or it can't fly quietly because an owl, if it makes noise, when it flies, if its wings make noise, it's going to starve. Because when the, when the, the prey hears the flappity-flap of the, of the owl coming, it takes off. But if the bird cannot be released for some reason or another, then I'm the next step, perhaps. If there's a, if there's a person who's an educator, and there's not a lot of people that do this, but if, if the educator needs a bird and is aware of it and has permission from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service because all the permits are involved in order to take care of that, then they can acquire that bird. They don't own it, but they can keep care of it. And then if they can train it where it will sit on your hand and it doesn't spook when, when, people, when, when it's up there like that, then it can be used as an educational bird. And so I've had a number of birds over the years that I've been able to train where they could be taken to classes or taken to, to, to groups, and the bird was okay being in front of strangers. Yeah, you've brought them to my classroom back when I was a teacher many a time. Always well, a thrill to the kids. Well, it's a thrill for me to be able to let them see these birds because this is something that... They don't know 
that all these birds are out there in the world. Oh, they might read about them or know about them in some way or another, but they, they don't never, I've gotten so close, they could touch them. We don't let them touch them because that can be, that can be frightening, for, frightening for the bird. And it, it, a person could be hurt because could be um, scratched by the talons or even the beak of the bird. But this is something that I've done for many years and because of COVID um, and raccoons getting into my, my muse where the birds were living, uh, COVID hasn't hurt the birds. COVID's hurt the audience <laughs> mm-hmm. because yeah. Yeah. they're not letting people, they're not letting strangers come in, bringing in birds because people got all these ideas that the birds going to bring in disease or maybe the, the educator's going to have disease and bring it in. So I haven't done any bird programs. Well, and well yeah, over, I think people are well over a year. So I'm I'm about out of birds, to tell you the truth. Well, you've still got a good crew of animals at your house. You were mentioning them early, earlier. So, well, um, I have I have a few snakes, and I have a, a screech owl, and then I have a peregrine falcon. And, and you should know, by the way, Steve is the, well, embarrassing, but the old, oldest of the three of us. He biked here today, from Zirconia. How far is that, Steve? My trip, twelve miles. From Zirconia, it's it's about 12 miles. And and going back, it's mostly mostly uphill. It's mostly downhill getting here. Right. So going back, which is just a few minutes. I used to ride that. Yeah, I I couldn't do it now. I rode it in my car following you not too long ago, Gary. That was fun. Well, you know, we're going to have to wrap this up because we don't know when this camera will die. But Steve is a rock star in all kinds of areas, and we're happy to have him on. We're lucky to have him. We are. And you know what? This doesn't happen often. Okay. Do you know what's coming up, Gary? I do. So, Steve now has received a certificate of BS in podcasting from the Gary and Mark Podcasting University. There it is. There's his diploma. And on the back of his diploma. Uh, On the back. uh, A very attractive decal. The Gary and Mark Podcasting University. As well as this two-week all-expense-paid to Rabbit Island Resort. Oh my God! Yes, just a hair better. Yes, just a hair better. Yes, and I'm telling you, it doesn't happen often. It's been a while since we've been able to do this, but we are so happy. I mean, and you not only earned it, but you get the extra honors, yeah. BS degree. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the Board of Trustees at Watershed, Gary and Mark Podcasting University, will get together and decide should he be on the faculty. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, we, we've got probably more faculty than we've graduates. We've got tons of faculty. We do. But, uh, Gary, anything else to say before we now well, thank this our is sponsors? Just, yeah, let's thank our sponsors. Big Wiz Pocket Buddy. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, let's see. You well, kind of hinted about Rabbit, Rabbit Island, Island Resorts. Yeah. Salute, uh, let's see, uh, Big yeah. Eddie's Green River Tap Room. Green Eddie. Big Eddie's. Let's see, what is it now? Big Eddie's. <laughs> Big Eddie's. Green River. <laughs> Absolute Outfitters. There you go, right down the road. From right here. down the road. All right, we got L.J. Myers and his professional white dove releases. Yeah. Yeah. Who and are we leaving out? We're leaving out Iron Key Brewing. Company. Oh, Iron Key Brewing. And now I have a decal on my podcasting bag over there from mm. them. And we also, let's see. Uh, we said it, Rabbit Island Resort. Yeah. But, but our friends, if they want to join Steve as a graduate, yeah, it is not too late to enroll. 
That's right. Free tuition. Free tuition, and we were right there. Talk about uh, online learning. Yes. Yeah. We were Distance the, learning. We, we were, you couldn't get any further away than us. No, we were we was, were ahead of that before anybody yeah. even thought of that. Uh, lots of BS. Uh, that's, well, we do have that. Gary, Gary came up with that, I think. So, yeah. uh, Steve, we want to thank you for being part of our show. Everybody yeah. needs to get to www.garyandmark.com and enroll in university. We'll we'll find a picture of Steve to put up there. And, on the and if you go Google Steve Longnecker, and there's an E. There's yeah, two E's, three, three E's. I hope I spelled Necker. that right. Okay. You did. Read, I did. read a little bit about the early days of climbing. But he is a pioneer. He is. He is. We're glad to have him. Yeah. So, Steve, thanks so much for being a part of this show today, Gary and Mark Podcast. And uh, hopefully you'll make us go viral. We could, we could use some of that. <laughs>